All right, so there you go. That's a little bit about this $100 million uh, national campaign called He Gets Us. And as Dane said, the goal is to help introduce people to who Jesus really is. And so these ads, and they're in print and social media and on TV, um, those ads direct people primarily to a website. And there at that website, people can ask questions, for uh, get more information, post prayer requests, those kind of things. And then the goal is to get those people connected to a local local um, church. And so we signed us up, we signed First Baptist up to be uh, a partner church here in our area about two weeks ago, and we have already had four people contact us uh, as spiritual seekers with real, honest, good uh, questions. And so it really is this interesting uh, ministry opportunity, and we are just excited to see what God wants to do with that. But I actually bring it up today because they say, and you saw that at the very beginning of this video, they say it all started with a question. And this group of people got together and they asked this question, how did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? Now that is a hard question for Christians to hear. I should also just say, I actually think that that's a, you know, it's a vast overstatement for the the vast majority of Christians and churches um, that I know. I think it's a totally unfair characterization, but we need to acknowledge that the perception is out there and the perception is something that that people really uh, feel. And so we need to be able to uh, be aware of that and we need to be able to address those kind uh, of issues. You see, for a long time now, the perception has been out there that there's a lot of people that say, you know, we like Jesus. We like who Jesus is. We like what he stands for. We like what he teaches. We're just not sure we like his people. We're not sure we like the, the, the church. And so it's my goal through this whole uh, series that we're in right now called uh, The Summer of Love as we're looking at what Jesus actually teaches about love. It's our heart as leaders of this church that we would begin to push back against that kind of thinking. And not necessarily push back against that kind of thinking with arguments as much as we would push back with real life actions and attitudes of love. And so we are going to do that uh, today as we look at maybe one of the most uh, challenging uh, things that Jesus says about love, one of the most difficult things he says, but it also is perhaps our greatest opportunity as Christians to stand out as different and to show the power of God is real in our life when we can do this super challenging thing. And I'm talking today about loving our enemies. And so that's our topic today, what it means to love our enemies. And I want to start by sharing just a couple examples, um, if you will, from popular culture, um, including what may be the second most famous slap that took place in our country um, this year. Because this is a picture of Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson. And a few weeks ago now, um, before a Cincinnati Reds and San Francisco Giants game, uh, Jock Peterson was warming up out of the outfield and Tommy Pham came up out of the blue and slapped him across the face. And the benches cleared and, and things got heated right away. Eventually they had to pull uh, Tommy Pham out, out of the situation and eventually um, out of the game. And so later on they asked him, hey, Tommy, what was the deal? Why would you come up and just slap this guy out of nowhere? And he said, well, it's not out of nowhere. He says, I've been holding the grudge on this guy for six months now. I've just been waiting for the chance to see him. So they're like, well, you know, why? What's, you know, why do you have so much malice towards this guy? You know, why are you harboring so much bitterness? Why were you just can't wait to, um, you know, to get this revenge? And Tommy Pham says this. He says, because I believe that he cheated in our fantasy football league. Mm-hmm. 
two multi-million dollar world-class athletes having a public slap fight in the outfield because they cheated in fantasy football. And here's the thing. We live in an age where that doesn't even surprise us. That's just uh, normal kind of stuff. But I, wanted to, I actually want to share, uh, by contrast, another story of two other uh, famous people. Um, this is, first of all, Pete Davidson, the comedian Pete Davidson, um, who was not dating a Kardashian at the time of this story. Um, but he was on Saturday Night Live, and he went on Saturday Night Live, and in his role there on Saturday Night Live, he crudely uh, mocked then newly elected congressman um, Dan Crenshaw, including making fun of how Crenshaw lost his eye as a, in, in combat, which is a terrible thing to do, right? That's a, that's a horrible thing to do. Well, the public backlash against Davidson was swift. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but people really uh, came to Crenshaw's defense and, and the, the, the backlash was very harsh against Davidson. And you could make a pretty good argument that it was well-deserved, right? You know, who mocks a decorated Navy SEAL uh, hero, you know, war hero who lost his eye in combat? That's just not a good thing um, to do. And so uh, Davidson started to really feel this and he, by his own admission, slipped into this deep depression. He even wrote on his Instagram account these words. He says, I really don't want to live on this earth anymore. He says, I'm doing my best to stay here, but I actually don't know how much longer I could last. So he starts to really feel it. And so the question is, how is is Crenshaw going to respond to this stuff? And I want to share that answer by reading a little story from a book called A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. And the story goes like this. It says, having lost his eye in combat in Afghanistan due to an explosion, some might have expected Crenshaw to say of Davidson, well, it serves him right. He could have added to the backlash or simply ignored the comedian. Instead, the veteran privately reached out to befriend, encourage, and speak life-giving words to Davidson. He told the comedian that everyone has a purpose in this world and that God put you here for a reason. He says it's your job to find that purpose and you should live that way. So instead of firing back, Crenshaw built a bridge. Instead of uh, shaming and scolding, he spoke tenderly. Instead of seeking vindication through retaliation, he sought friendship through peacemaking. Instead of adding to the cycle of outrage, he soundly debated or defeated outrage with a gesture of unconditional love. Moved by compassion for the pain that Davidson was going through that had brought upon himself, Crenshaw actually... um, uh, the, the, the Crenshaw, a man trained in military strike and defense, offered a gentle answer. In fact, so gentle that it turned away the wrath of another man's ire, which is what the scripture says, a gentle answer uh, turns away wrath. Then on Veterans Day weekend, the two came face to face on Saturday Night Live. I think we got a picture of that uh, night. So they came face to face on Saturday Night Live to make amends. Crenshaw offered warm remarks and high praise in reference to Davidson's own father, who was a New York City firefighter who had died in September 11th terrorist attacks when Davidson was seven years old. At the end of this segment, once they thought that the cameras were off, the embattled but now humbled comedian leaned over to Crenshaw and whispered these words, you are a very good man. I don't know about you, but to me, that's such a powerful story. And to me, it illustrates some of what we need to talk about when we look at Jesus' commands to love 
our enemies. And what does it mean to love our enemies? Um, So grab your message notes. Hopefully you received those um, as you came in. Uh, Grab your Bible or your phone, whether you're watching here or in the gym or online, wherever you are. Let's open up our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be right in the heart of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that it's the best and the most important sermon ever preached in the the history of the world uh, known as Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to jump right into that beginning in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 where Jesus says these words. So you have heard that it was said, Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus starts by saying, this is what you've heard said. This is a saying, a popular saying that you have in your day, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I need to say something real clear. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says in Leviticus chapter 19 that you are to love your neighbor. It doesn't say anything about hating your enemy. Now in Leviticus 19, what it does talk about is how the Israelites were supposed to love one another and and show favor to one another and all these kind of things. And so people took that idea about loving your neighbor and they said, well, we're good to love our neighbor, but if we're going to love our neighbor, that means we're going to hate our enemies. You see, people have a way of, uh, of loving to twist around God's word, especially when God's word is, is hard to us. And so this is not what it said, but they twisted it around. They said, well, you say you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus flips that around and he says this, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So as I said, these are some of Jesus's, literally his most challenging um, words, because what he's describing is uh, really the heart of a value system, a a heart of what we're going to call a Christian ethic that is not just radical, but it's revolutionary. And let's be honest, it is not very popular. We may like it. We want people to love us when we're their enemy, but we don't always like to show love um, to them. So this teaching about loving your enemy is actually quite straightforward. We've said this about a lot of Jesus's teaching about love. The problem is not understanding it. Uh, The problem is putting it into action. But these words are also quite familiar to Christians and non-Christians alike. And so what I want to do for these next uh, few minutes that we have together is I want to ask really just three simple questions about this teaching. First of all, I'm going to ask the question, what is Jesus teaching? What does it mean to love our enemies? Um, And then we're going to ask a how question. How can we put this into practice? And then third, we're going to ask, why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal in the kingdom of God? So first of all, what does it mean to love my enemies? And I want to suggest that it is more than just being a, a Christian victim. Because a lot of times people read these verses and they say, well, Jesus is just telling you to, to, to play the, the victim. Um, so it's more than just being a Christian victim or a doormat. It's also beyond non-retaliation, 
right, towards those who hate um, or, harm, or harm you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to imagine the scene on that day when Jesus first preaches the Sermon on the Mount. We know that it was right along the beautiful Sea of Galilee and there on those grassy hills, he brings everybody together and he gives them this message. Now the crowd that day was primarily made up of Jewish people. Certainly there were some other people there that day, but it was primarily Jewish people who knew and believed that they were God's chosen people. So they had that as kind of a value. But they also knew, especially those living around the Sea of Galilee there, what it meant to live under a deep systemic oppression from all kinds of outside people. At the moment, they were oppressed by the Roman people. And not just the Roman people, but there were some Jews who had actually shown sympathy and kind of sided with the Roman people, usually for a prophet. And so most of the audience that Jesus was speaking to on that day would have known what it was like to be oppressed. And so certainly in that crowd, we know for a fact because Jesus' own disciples were there, but certainly because he was there along the Sea of Galilee, there were some fishermen in the crowd. And these fishermen would have known not only the long, but the back-breaking and sometimes dangerous work that it was to fish to feed your family there on the Sea of Galilee. And so these guys knew that, you know, sometimes you would put in a huge, long, dangerous day and you would take the fish that you caught and before you could even get those fish home to your family, before you could even get those fish home to the marketplace, you might come across a tax collector. And it could be a Roman, but it could be one of your own people. It could be someone like Matthew. It could be someone like Zacchaeus. And these tax collectors would take what Rome was going to take, which I don't know the amount, but it was a a large amount. And they would take not only that, but then they had the ability to take on top of that a little something for themselves. And maybe it wasn't just a little, maybe they took a lot. And if you as a fisherman protested against that and said, that's not fair or that's wrong, these tax collectors had every right to reach out and slap you across the face. And they had the power behind them as well. They had the power to just reach out and slap you And if you are a follower of Jesus, who is a fisherman in that situation, what do you do at that point? Also in the crowd that day, I would imagine that there were some people that were were families. Maybe families that were together down by the Sea of Galilee. Maybe they were even enjoying a picnic or something like that. And and at the end of the day, they knew that it was time to head back up to Tiberias or Bethsaida, wherever they lived, a little bit off the the lake there. And so they grabbed their stuff. and, And as they start back to their town, they would maybe encounter some Roman soldiers. And these Roman soldiers with their swords drawn could pull you out of the crowd and would be humiliating to you because not only they're in front of your family and in front of the crowd, now you're pulled out and you're singled out and, and they do that and they say, hey, I want you to carry my bag for me. And in that bag, maybe there were the tools that were used to oppress your very people. But what are you going to do, right? He's a soldier. And so with the sword drawn, you pick up the bag and you go. And if you were a follower of Jesus in that kind of situation, what do you do at that point? Well, Jesus directly speaks into these kinds of situations. So it's important for us to understand when we talk about loving our enemies, some of the context that leads up to what Jesus said. So I want to back up to the verses just before this and look at Matthew 5, verse 38, where Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was another thing people love to say, right? Get even, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus flips it on his head and he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so you say, well, Glenn, hey, I thought you just said this was not about being a Christian victim. This was not about uh, non-retaliation. It's not about being a doormat for people to walk on. Well, the reason I say that this is not this teaching that Jesus gives us here is not about being a victim um, is because in some ways, actually in many ways, being a victim is way easier than what Jesus is acting, asking us to do here. You see, victims have no power. Victims are, are passive. They just take what comes to them. Jesus, what Jesus is telling us here is far more than just being passive. And it may be one of the most difficult things that he asks us to do. Why? Because Jesus is saying this. He is saying love for our enemies. Love for our enemy, enemies de- demonstrates not only the ultimate kingdom of God ethic, right? This demonstrates who his people are. Why? Because they are intentionally, they are on purpose, they are by choice, they are by action, not as victims, but as people responding by choice and intention to return hate with love. And it sounds crazy to us. Because try to imagine now, if you're that fisherman and the tax collector slaps you across the cheek, Instead of getting angry, instead of striking back, instead of beginning to plot revenge, you think to yourself, how does Jesus see that person? And it sounds crazy, but you say, well, hey, guy, this this person just slapped me. It's got a lot of anger. I don't know what's going on with them. They, They must be under a lot of stress. And if for some reason for them to slap me one time is going to help them slap me a second time because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and we are here to serve and lay down our lives. And if the Roman soldier pulls his sword and humiliates you in front of the crowd and says, take my bag a mile, you say, well, hey, if it, if it helps to take your bag one mile, I'll go ahead and I'll take it too because I'm a follower of Jesus and we're here to serve and we're here to sacrifice. And again, it sounds crazy, but you know what it's not? It's not being a victim, right? A victim has no power. Jesus may be saying, you do not have the power to control what people are going to do to you, right? And we all get that. We can't control the way people are going to respond to us. But you know what we have the power to control? The way that we respond to them. And you guys, if his church can do this stuff, imagine the revolution that takes place, right? It reminds me a little bit of Martin Luther King's famous words. Uh, Martin Luther King says this, he says, I've decided to stick with love because hate is too great of a burden to bear. Now, if you've been around, you know, we've quoted Martin Luther King, I think quite a few times during um, this series because he's such a great example of love. Uh, But I also want you to see this quote um, by Richard Nixon because Richard Nixon never gets quoted in sermons. Um, But this is awesome. Richard Nixon said this. He said, always remember, others may hate you. Others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them back. And then you end up destroying yourself. And so what is Jesus calling us to? He's calling us to love our enemies as the highest Christian ethic. And he says, this is going to truly demonstrate that you are God's 
people. You are God's children. So you're like, how do I do this? This just seems, how do I actually love my enemies? This seems beyond, you know, what is human. I'm only human here. It's beyond what I could do. Jesus, how do we, how do we really do this? It sounds like a good theory um, here on a Sunday morning, but how do I really put this um, into action? I want to look at a few things that Jesus says that are very practical here about how we actually do it, because he gives us some great stuff. Starting with, we learn from the weather. We learn from the weather. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what Jesus says in uh, verse 45. Check out what he says. He says, he, talking about God the Father, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain and he sends it on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so Jesus says, take a look at the way that God even runs the world by looking at the weather. That should give us a clue to how we're supposed to respond uh, to people as well. So this idea, those of you who are, you know, theologians, uh, sometimes theologians use the word common grace to describe this here. So common grace means things that God gives that are is a, a graceful gift that are common to all people. So the definition um, here, as you can see, and it's in your notes, says this. Uh, common grace describes God's indiscriminate kindness to all humankind. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever through the abundant and daily blessings of earthly life. Jesus gives us this great example of common grace by saying God causes the sun to rise whether you, you love him or, or hate him. God causes the sun or causes the, um, uh, the, the rain to come. And he doesn't say, you know, it rains over here on, you know, my people, but it doesn't rain on, on those people over there. No, his common grace gives his gifts to all people indiscriminately, right? Now, it's different from saving grace, and we'll actually see that in a little bit. But common grace is this idea that we show the same kind of treatment to all people. And, and what Jesus is saying is look at the way that God does the weather and you treat people the same way as that. So in other words, we don't look at people and say, I, I don't like you and you were mean to me and I got a problem with you and so no rain for you, no rain for you, no rain for you, but I like you, rain for you, right? That's just not the way it works unless you live in California and it never rains. So we don't even understand this example, but you get the point. So how do we show that kind of common grace? How do we get to that point? We need to consider something else. Not only do we consider the weather, but we need to consider the way that God loves you and the way that God loves me. Now, I want to just say here, we don't, I don't like to talk like this very often because these words, though they're in scripture, sound hard. They sound harsh to us to even talk about them, but we need to. Because do you know that the Bible actually says that each and every one of us sets ourselves up as an enemy of God. That's right. I, I, don't, I don't think of myself like that. I hope you don't either. But, but the Bible actually says that we can be enemies of God every time we sin. Every time we choose to say, I'm going to go my way because my way is better than your way, God. Every time we choose to bow our lives and, 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 and worship a, an idol, whether it's wealth or sex or, you know, family or anything that we say, this is the place that God should have, but I'm going to give this other thing, that place in my life. The Bible says that we actually set ourselves up as enemies of God. But the point is, we need to think that how does God love us? And Romans chapter 5 tells us very clearly this. Check this out. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says this, while we were God's enemies, while we were God's enemies, he did what? He pushed us away No, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So in other words, Jesus went to the cross 
not because we're such warm, cuddly, fun, likable people. Jesus went to the cross even when we behaved like his enemies. And so, so that's the model for us. So we love and we sacrifice our enemies even when we um, don't feel like it. And I want to just dig into what he says here a little bit more because I want us to see some practical ways that he says that you can really do this, right? How do you, how do, you do that? And I want you, as we, we look at these three things, I want you to notice what none of these things have anything to do with, which is how you feel, quite honestly. None of these things are about emotion. In fact, you can search Jesus's teaching primarily on loving our enemies, but even loving your neighbor, and never does he say anything about do it when you feel like it, do it when the emotions are there. Instead, what you see described is this Greek word that we talk about a lot in in churches, which is the, the word agape. And in many ways, love is the best translation for it, but love is in some ways not a grant great translation, because especially as Americans, we've really redefined love to be all about feelings, right? Uh, If I feel like it, I will show that emotion or that compassion or that love to you. And the word agape is not about feelings. It is about commitment. It is about decision. And what it says here, what Jesus says, is we show that kind of commitment. In other words, there's going to be times where you don't like your enemy. And Jesus is not asking us to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards our enemy. What he's asking us to do is show compassion and to return. When they give us something bad, we return God's best to them, right? So it's not necessarily about all those feelings. And here's the thing. We're supposed to do that to our enemies. But honestly, we're supposed to do that to everyone, right? Husbands and wives, sometimes you don't feel like loving your spouse. I mean, I've, I've never experienced that, but I've heard sometimes that it's true. And God doesn't say, love, Jannie, when you feel like it. He says, agape love. So I, I've done a, a, I did a wedding last weekend. I did a wedding last night. I've got a wedding coming up um, in a couple weeks, three weddings in June. And every time I'm going to stand in front of these couples and, you know, they're young and in love. And I'm going to say, hey, you guys, you should really just love each other when you feel like it. Absolutely not. I'm going to say to them, I'm going to look them in the eyes and I'm going to say, you are about to make vows to one another that says whether we're sick or in health, whether we're rich or poor, whether things are better or worse. That's agape kind of love that doesn't say I love you when I feel like it, but I love you based on a commitment. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when we love our enemies, because you're not going to feel like it. They're your enemy. They've hurt you. They've harmed you. You can't wait for the emotions. You have to respond out of obedience. And so Jesus gives us a couple practical ways to do that, to put this love into uh, to, to action. One of them, very simply, is to pray for our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Have you ever done this? Have you ever prayed for someone who's hurt you, harmed you, persecuted you? It's not easy to do. It's hard to even get started praying for a person like that. And you can't pray like David does sometimes in the Old Testament. God, break the teeth of my enemies or, you know, strike them down. There's some of those kind of prayers. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But here's the thing. When you can begin to pray for your enemy, what you're going to find is it's a lot more difficult to return hate to someone that you're, you're praying for. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't go away like some little magic thing. But God begins to work on our hearts when we pray for those who persecute us. 
And so he says, here's just a practical thing you can do. And it's not when you feel like it, it's you just do this. Another thing that Jesus says is that we bless those. I'm actually going to jump us out of the book of Matthew real quick because in the gospel of Luke, Luke also records this sermon. Uh, and, and when he uh, records Jesus' words here, he includes something just a little bit more. Um, in Luke 6, 27 and 28, it says this. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So uh, when someone curses us, that means that they use negative, uh, uh, harmful, maybe even untrue words about us. To curse someone is to use your words to tear that person down or to harm that person. And Jesus says there's going to be people who curse you. And you don't return their curse with a curse, but you return it with words of blessing. Words that build up, words that speak life. And by the way, you guys, this means that not only do we return those words of blessing to people when we're face to face with them and we say those words, but it means we say those words of blessing behind their back too, right? Because to gossip about a person, even if they've done something mean to you or hurtful to you, is still a sin. And so Jesus said you pray for them and you, you bless them in return. And when you do this, It's amazing. That's the story that we read about Dan Crenshaw, who when hurtful words had been said to him, he reached out with words of kindness. And it really changes the whole story. So that brings us to our final question, which is why is this so important? Why is this such a big deal um, to love our enemies? Um, And the reason it is, is because this is, as we said, maybe one of the most powerful things that we have to stand out as different from the world around us. This is so countercultural. And we've said this all along. Our whole Summer of Love series is, hey, let's be countercultural in the way that we love God, in the way that we love our neighbor, in the way that we love one another. But this stuff here is very countercultural. And if you can do this, and if we can do this, that whole thing about, you know, how did the you know, greatest love story become known as a hate group, that's how it begins to get flipped around. Jesus says it like this. He says, if you love those who love you, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, great, good for you. What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You see, Jesus is saying anybody can show love to the people that it's easy to show love to. But it's Jesus' people that show love even when it's hard. As I mentioned, we've, we've quoted Martin Luther King uh, several times um, during this series because he really is just such a, a powerful example in our nation's history of this and kind of an iconic example of this. But I wanted to share uh, something about Martin Luther King that's not a quote as much as it is uh, a picture. There's this powerful picture um, of Dr. King, and it's not uh, one where he's standing in front of a huge crowd um, at the, the Lincoln Memorial speaking to a crowd of people. Um, but this took place in 1963 out in front of Dr. King's house. And the night before, some coward, some racist had burned a cross on his front lawn. And so the next morning, Martin Luther King gets up and apparently puts on his best suit. And he grabs his son and he comes out front to clean up what had been done against him. This was not a media event. Um, There was obviously some people around to take a picture. There were some people around that heard what Dr. King said on that day. He didn't say it to a crowd. It was actually a prayer that he prayed as he was picking this cross up. And his prayer was this. Lord, will you bless the people that did this? And they say Martin Luther King said, Lord, teach me to love those 
people. And in the 2,000 years since Christ was here on earth, if you look back at history, what endures for the kingdom of God is not the people that usher in the kingdom by force and by political power and by coercion. Those things come and go. But a radical Christ-like love changes people's hearts, right? And that endures forever, and that goes on, uh, and it's the most enduring impact. Which brings me to just the very last thing that I want to share with you. Why, why is it so important that we're to love our enemies? And it's this, is I need Jesus if I'm going to love like Jesus. I need Jesus if I'm going to love like Jesus. Like I said before, love for enemy is not a natural thing. To love those who harm us doesn't come natural to any of us. I'm not talking about doing what's easy or natural. I'm talking about what's doing what is supernatural. Something that we can only do when God indwells us. When only We can only do when we are like Jesus, right? Because there's just no way we can do it otherwise. Jesus actually says it like this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you're like, what are you talking about? In all my years of following Jesus, I have never felt perfect. I have never felt probably even that close to perfect. And so this reminds me more than anything of how much I need God and how much I need Jesus. But here's the thing. What we said is this all demonstrates not only what, how great we are, it demonstrates the power of God in our life. And you know what? I may not be perfect, and you may not be perfect, but when God looks down on those that have been forgiven through Jesus Christ, though we were enemies of him, we are reconciled to him. God no longer sees enemies. He sees friends. He no longer sees us as sinner. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as clean. And, and, and that's the power, right, of love to take someone who is an enemy and turn them into a friend. And that's what God has done with my life. And I hope that that's what God has done in your life. And if not, he invites you to that very thing today, to say, Jesus, come into my life. I, I, I didn't come in thinking I was an enemy of God, but I recognize that I've kind of gone my own way. I want to be a friend of God, and that happens through his love for us. And that's the kind of love that we receive, and that's the kind of love that we show others. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your words, your, your fun and life-giving and joyful words, and your hard and your challenging words. We thank you, Lord, for the model of Jesus to love his enemies. Lord, the, the one who went to the cross and still said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, Father, would you make that kind of love present in your church? Father, we recognize that if we're going to live like you, we really need you. And so, Father, I pray on behalf of myself and, and my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would open up our hearts, Lord, to not only receive you as our Savior, but to guide us, Lord, into all truth and, and love. And, and Father, where there's enemies or people that, that we've been holding something against, Father, that you would give us not only the courage, but the power to make those amends, to go forward. And so, Lord, I thank you for your teaching. I pray that it would just sweep across this church, that it would sweep across my life like wildfire. And people would look and say, wow, those people, Jesus' people, I want to be a part of that. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.